Hello everyone, and welcome to our pilot episode of This Black Bear Has 28 Minutes, a Kootenai Arts and Culture podcast presented by students from the Selkirk College Creative Writing Program, alongside amazing collaborators from across the Kootenays. I'm your host, Tressa Ford, and if you're looking for ways to connect and get inspired in the Kootenays and beyond during COVID times, look no further. We'll have updates each episode to keep you in the loop for what's happening in the community, news, events, book launches, and more. To kick off the podcast, join us as Stephanie Henriksen sits down with Nelson-based poet and author Jane Byers for an interview on her upcoming book, Small Courage, a queer memoir of finding love and conceiving family. This will be followed by selected readings from our talented Selkirk College students. Today we have Brie Harwood reading her piece, Live Like a Poet, a poem about not conforming to a poet's personality, and Tyler Isaacs de Jong reading his piece, A Brief Defense, an eerie tale of macabre market economics originally learned from the Tooth Fairy. All that and so much more, but first, a quick community check-in. Touchstones Museum in Nelson has two awesome exhibitions on right now. As Immense as the Sky, a beautiful exhibit by Indigenous artist Meryl McMaster that's going to be on display until the end of February, and an amazing Métis art and history exhibit that premiered in November through a partnership with the West Kootenai Métis Society. That exhibit will be around until February 21st. There's also Nelson's Cold War Bunker underneath the post office, for which tours are now available. Go get registered for one, folks. It's super cool down there. Check out the Touchstones Nelson website for more details. The Oxygen Arts Centre in Nelson has a new artist-in-residence, filmmaker, artist, and educator Brian Lai. He'll be working in the space throughout December, and the exhibition will be open for viewing from January 6th to the 30th. Also in the new year, the Oxygen Arts Centre will be partnering with the Elephant Mountain Literary Festival for a 2021 Winter Author Reading Program, taking place the last Wednesday of each month from January to March over Zoom. First up, on January 27th, will be Hannah Calder and Michael V. Smith. Check out the Oxygen Arts Centre's website for further details on how to register. In Castlegar, the Kootenai Gallery is now open seven days a week from 10 to 5 until December 23rd for all your Christmas shopping needs. If you can't make it over there in person, check out their online shop at www.kootenaigallerygifts.com and support local artisans and entrepreneurs. In Trail, check out the Visic Gallery and the programs they'll be hosting in the new year. Find their website at www.visicgallery.com. And, while still staying in the comfort of your own home, check out the Kootenai Co-op Radio for Novel Ideas, a program hosted by Samara Nickel and Natasha Grillo on alternating Tuesdays at 4pm, aimed at connecting Kootenai book enthusiasts with the local literary scene. Still on the radio, for all you poetry fiends out there, there's Brad Bradley's show Poetry for Keeps, also at 4pm on alternating Tuesdays. And check out the Words on Baker Facebook page for more info on upcoming poetry events in Nelson. Okay, I think that's enough housekeeping for now. So without any further delay, here's Stephanie with Jane Byers. Hello, everyone. Today, I have the honor of sitting down with Jane Byers, a Nelson-based author of several collections of poetry, and most recently, Small Courage, a queer memoir of finding love and conceiving family. Jane has kindly agreed to a remote interview with me to discuss her recently published memoir, 
dedicated to her loving family, Amy, Theo, and Franny. You gave details on your family background in the memoir, stating your mother was the eighth child in a blended family and she had a disabled father. You wrote, being seen was not something anyone aspired to. In fact, moving quietly under the radar was safer. This book seems to be an act of not moving quietly under the radar. Could you speak more to this subject of the importance of being seen? Yeah, it was a you know a process of of uncovering of of realizing that that was a real theme for me in this book, and also um, just that the you know the generational um, pieces that my mother held about around that, and so did my father. I mean, they grew up in post World War II Britain, um, you know, at where yeah they. Um, literally you could not be seen during the war. You had to have the lights out um, at nighttime so that you wouldn't get bombed and things. So on a more, on a literal and a metaphorical uh, um, wavelength, you, you couldn't be seen. So um, that was, you know, in a way my inheritance, but, you know, my mother um, wanted to be seen as we all do want to be seen. And so there, there's that kind of funny dichotomy of, you know, that, that notion like children should really um, not, I mean, there's the old saying children should be seen and not heard. Well, I think, you know, there's something in that that's like children shouldn't be, um, you know, stand out and they shouldn't be seen and, and that sort of thing. And, and so I feel like um, that was the line, but yet I, you know, I had this mother that wasn't being seen and wanted to be. And so um, that became a theme uh, as I started to write the chapters of the book to, to realize, oh, this whole being seen piece is a real theme or a motif in, in the book. Like, um, you know, not only me recognizing I wanted to be seen, but recognizing my mother wanted to be seen, that all of us want really, you know, um, want and need to be, you know, want and need to be seen. And that being seen is so different for every individual. Yeah, and I think, you know, um, it, it sort of, there's this great line, my, my partner is a filmmaker and she, she did this documentary about same-sex couples adopting um, called uh, Conceiving Family. And we're one of the couples in there, but there's this great line from this, uh, from um, this lesbian couple from Vancouver who were in fact the first people to challenge the law about, um, about same-sex sex couples both being on um, the adoption papers as the parents, because it used to be that only one could be on there. And, um, you know, their line was, well, we're used to taking up space in the world. And, um, you know, at some point you realize that you need to, you need to do that, um, that if you don't take the space, nobody will give you the space. And so I think coming out and just being comfortable in your skin is, is sort of that process of realizing that you, you know, you, you can take up a little bit of space in the world. It's okay. Uh, so it's a practice though. <laughs> it is. And if you take, if you decide to take up that space, you're kind of 
set carving the path for people like you to maybe take up space too. Yeah, I, well, I hope so. I hope that yeah. that's the, the result. Um, mm -hmm. And I think it also gives people uh, permission to be okay with things. I mean, it's sort of like, you know, um, being in the closet, not being out, uh, doesn't allow for people to ask you what it's like to be um, LGBTQ, you know, if, if you're not out there saying, hey, this is who I am, and you know, you can deal with that. Um, so I, I think it gives people permission to actually have more open conversations as well. So when was same-sex marriage legalized in Canada? Uh, it was somewhere around, um, well, the year we got married was when it was legalized nationally. So that would have been 2005, uh, but it was legalized in Ontario in 2003 and probably in BC somewhere around that time too. I, I lived in Ontario at the time, so I don't know exactly the, the date, but um, you know, at some point it tipped over into instead of provinces uh, legalizing it, it became a national. Nice. I love that you guys got married to celebrate <laughs> not only your love, but um, the legalization of love for everyone. Yeah, it felt important to, yeah. to sort of take a stand. It's like some, some people have been fighting a long time for this right. I wanted to take advantage of that right. So And there's places in the world where you it isn't legal still. There's a lot of places where marriage isn't legal. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's, I mean, I think, is Italy just legalizing it now? And there's a huge kickback from the Catholic Church. Oh, wow. Um, you know, so it's not just, you know, the countries that we might think of as, as not legalizing um, uh, marriage. It's like, you know, even European countries haven't legalized it yet. You know, I mean, the, what comes to mind are places like Uganda, where for a while there it was looking like they would have, um, not only would being um, homosexual be illegal it was punishable by death that's what, where they were going with that so they're, they're a long way from legalizing marriage you can't even you know identify as that so wow yeah we're fortunate to be here we are and to make art to show people that it is okay mm -hmm. um, I am wondering how we can watch conceiving family <laughs> Oh, um, yeah, it's, uh, it is um, distributed by a film distributor. I think if you, if you go look up Conceiving Family, I'll get you the link, but I, I, I think if you look it up, you can rent it. Mm. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Um, I, I'm sorry, I don't have the link off the top of my head, but I'll get it to you. <laughs> Um, we'll just move along. When you um, pick up your kids from school or see them with their class, are they a visible minority? Uh, yeah, they're kids of color. And, you know, while Nelson is getting a lot more um, diverse, uh, you know, it's nice to see um, more uh um, kids of color in the schools, more, um, you know, uh, students.
parents around um, with a similar background of my kids, which is, uh, you know, Indian. Um, and so it's, it's really great to see more diversity in our town. I mean, I think there's diversity, like we have to define what diversity is. There's diversity of thought, which we have a lot of already here, <laughs> I think. Um, people choosing to live their lives in different kinds of ways. Um, but in terms of, of seeing uh, BIPOC people, it's really nice for our kids to see others um, who look like them. And, um, but yeah, I mean, in our, in the kids classes, I think there may be one, I think in my son's class, there may be one other kid of color or something like that. Um, and, you know, typically it would fluctuate between zero other kids, mm -hmm. except if his, him and his sister were in the same class or, um, you know, maybe one, one other kid. Yeah. I, I've seen that. I worked with kids a little bit at Redfish School and just kept thinking how different it was from the way I grew up because I went to an international school. Oh. There was a lot of uh, biracial kids I went to school with. Right. So I, was, I was just thinking, what would it been like? What would have it have been like for me if I um, wasn't seeing anyone that looked like me? <laughs> Um, yeah, and so like we, you know, one of our biggest um, hesitancies when we were offered the kids to adopt, like we were matched with the kids, you know, and said, you, you know, are you interested in, in adopting the twins, um, was that we live in a small place that's predominantly white and we were concerned that they wouldn't see themselves here. Um, and so we always are really committed to um, visiting other places where there's a lot more diversity, where they can see people who look like them. Um, and speaking of international schools, my, my brother is a teacher at a British international school in Northern Thailand. And, and so we went to visit him uh, three years ago now. And, um, you know, one of the great things about being in Thailand was our kids saw saw lots of other brown kids and um, in fact got mistaken for Thai a couple of times and um, they loved it because it was like we tell them all the time that you know there's more there's more brown people than there are white people in in lots of places but it was only a you know a theoretical thing for them but to actually experience that was was so lovely and you know and so we go to cities and we go to little like we used to funny enough we used to live in little india in toronto before we moved out here and so we go back and we always visit that neighborhood when we're in toronto so it's not the same as living in a place with a lot of diversity but it helps i think it really does and when i look at the cover of your book it just makes me smile because it's a happy family. <laughs> like Franny's screaming, but <laughs> you're holding her tight. <laughs> she doesn't want to be confined. <laughs> she's safe and she's next to her brother and it, it makes me happy also that they're together and with you guys. Oh, thank you. Yeah, no worries. Um, so with that being said, um, it brings me to the next question. So you mentioned your kids have an interest in the BLM movement. At their young age, do you think they understand the concept of racism? And where do you think they learned this? Uh, well, they do definitely have an interest in it and are, are very passionate about, um, about 
raising awareness and about um, people not experiencing racism. Uh, they, I mean, unfortunately, one of the places that they've learned racism is, um, you know, they had, uh, Theo had an experience in his class a couple of years ago in grade five where somebody called him something racist and another student and it was over lunchtime. So there were no adults in the room. And, um, you know, fortunately, like it was, um, his friends really stuck up for him and called this other kid out for saying something racist. Um, and the friend leading the charge was actually his sister. Uh, so that was really cool. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it had a great outcome and he felt so supported by his peers, but he experienced an act of racism. And um, so it was probably one of their firsthand experiences, um, the biggest one definitely um, to date. I mean, there's, there's little things that happen in Nelson all the time, you know, as a, as a lesbian, I was prepared for uh, discrimination to exist, but I was still surprised at the number of times that we've been asked, like, oh, where are your kids from? Because, you know, the underlying assumption is, well, they can't be from here because they're brown and, and Canadians aren't brown, you know? And so I really delight in saying they're from Kelowna. They're from here, you know, they were born in Kelowna, but, you know, and, um, but, you know, that, that question, while it seems to be fairly benign, is actually, you know, uh, it, it has assumptions underneath it that are tiring to be able to respond to all the time. Do you find that? Yes, thanks for bringing that up. And I'm really proud of where I, I'm from. And so, and I'm, and I'm different in the sense that I grew up in Indonesia but I have a Canadian passport. I consider myself from both places, but sometimes mm -hmm. when I'm asked here, uh, I can tell when someone's like, in the tone of how they ask the question, where are you from? <laughs> sometimes I can tell like, you don't, you don't look like you're from here. So that's why I'm asking. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I, I just respond with pride with, from, with saying exactly where I'm from. But yeah, I've had some very, I think it's <laughs> working at a cafe. I've had moments where with my girlfriends or coworkers, they'll say something and I'll be like, wow, that was so racist. <laughs> and it's, but I'm always trying to keep the peace and mm -hmm. I and trying to educate in a way that isn't combative. I just mm -hmm. want them to know that sometimes it hurts the things they say, even though they don't think it does. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, you know, that's a lot to shoulder all the time. Like it's not, it's not your job to be always the one educating, you know, just yeah. like, it's, I mean, there's a lot to be said for that dialogue. And I think it goes a long way, especially with people we're invested in. Um, but it also is a lot of, um, it's a lot of work to be, to be taking that on as needing to be the educators all the time. And, you know, it's sometimes it requires the other people doing the actual work. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I mean, I guess the other black lives matter um, piece to answer your question is just that, uh, you know, our kids are like, we make sure we um, 
watch the news sometimes and we talk about the things that are going on and um, you know, they're very like, they're appalled by Donald Trump. I mean, most Canadians are, but they, you know, and they think he's racist and, you know, and, and people within their extended family voted for him. And so that brings up a lot of big feelings for them. So, um, you know, so they're interested in, in the whole movement and, um, excuse me, they also, uh, you know, I mean, they, they're 13, they learn things from TikTok people, you know, <laughs> too (laughs) but that's great that people are talking about black lives matter on on there in that in that kind of you know 12 second way but yeah and maybe one day they'll be part a part of these peaceful protests that i think are so powerful or these marches celebrating um love like pride i know that we can't march through the streets right now but it just seems like your kids are getting a really beautiful view on the world and that they will be accepting of everyone. Yeah, my daughter has been, they've been talking about homelessness at school and she's apparently been really articulate and leading the way uh, uh, with talking about it from a compassionate place, which I was so delighted to hear from her teacher because she wouldn't have told us all the things that she said, but she was, you know, calling out people who um, who had really closed minds about it. And I was just, I love that, you know, and, and that's as a 13 year old when people really want to fit in, you know, so. Yeah. <laughs> oh, 13. Do you have an example of words of encouragement for young people who experience discrimination based on things they cannot change? Uh, you know, young people give me a lot of hope. Like that example I just talked about with my son, the great, you know, his grade five class, with the exception of, of this one kid who said, a, you know, something racist to him and that kid's best friend, the whole rest of the class stuck up for him and called this other kid out as far as saying something racist and saying, you know, you can't do that. That's not cool. And, um, the, they actually handled it better than the adult did, the, like the principal. So what gives me hope is actually the, the, you know, the young people standing up and like the youth activists that are, you know, leading the charge with, um, with all kinds of movements, whether it be uh, climate change or, or um, Black Lives Matter. Um, and so my encouraging words are to look at what's actually happening in the world (laughs) because the the youth are actually where I get my hope. Uh, uh, You know, I think that people who um, have beliefs that are a little bit archaic and, and those people are, you know, older, I'm not, I don't necessarily put much time into trying to change their minds. um, If their minds aren't already, changing but the but the way kids are being taught is you know i think is much more open-minded um like even just the indigenous curriculum for example you know that when i was in school you know when i was in school there was a um a native reserve not far away and what we learned was awful we learned that you know oh you know that that um 
the people on the reserve lived in poverty and, and they drank a lot. And we didn't learn anything to counter that popular opinion in, in school at all. Um, I mean, the most we learned about was Louis Riel, but you know, we didn't learn the, the truth or the, you know. And so, uh, you know, what gives me hope is actually that things have changed uh, a huge amount in terms of people um, having much more open mind and learning stories that aren't just the stories of the, um, you know, the white settlers. I mean, I, I think there's still lots of bias there, but I'm, you know, so that's that's uh, where where I get my hope from, and um, and I think you know it comes back to sort of like taking up space in the world. If you're willing to say, "Hey, that's not cool," and yes, I'm taking my space in the world, that the world will give you the space. So that, I guess that's my encouraging little piece for young people. For saying that, yeah, I I'm so um, proud of the youth as well. They're really standing up for things that they should be, like equality and climate change. Thanks to Stephanie and Jane. That was amazing. But don't go anywhere yet, folks, because now we'll swing over to some talented writers from Selkirk College. First up, Bree Harwood and her poem, Live Like a Poet. Live like a poet. You said that was the intention of the week, which is great if I were a little less inflexible and a little more trickling stream, like the kind they force you to listen to in the dentist's waiting room. But I'm not. And that's the problem, because when everything in my world is more like the blocks of cement choking out the sky in the Jewish memorial, I become a Berlin tourist, navigating around the stones, careful not to disturb the paths and accidentally collapse history. Control is easy to find when you're the ship navigating through the tight spaces of the canyons in my favorite childhood movie about pirates, because there's no better symbol for freedom than a drunken sailor. Note, I'm only being half sarcastic here. I'm a little less ebb, less spontaneous than I would like to be, than a poet would be. I confine myself to the short distance between letters instead of the wide gaps between lines. Although I would much rather find myself within the chaos of an unclean kitchen. The songs of British men during a football match and the spilt beer in the pubs afterwards. But I'm a little too conformist, a little too funeral, and not enough prog at night when the stars begin peeking out against a dimming sky and the air in your lungs tastes like adventure. That was beautiful and wonderfully read, Brie. Thanks for sending that in. Now we have Tyler Isaac Dejong with his poem, A Brief Defense. Daddy taught me all that I should know, long before I started losing teeth. So by the tender age of five or six, I sincerely held in my belief the tooth fairy, in name, was quite benign. A friendly capitalist, 
market-wise. So when I lost my molars round age nine, well, wasn't I the model of surprise? The friendly fairy who collects my teeth came to me in a dream that eerie night. Her body, stitched from several slimy beasts, a tinkerbell or godmother, not quite. She told me, Now, my child, you've come of age, and pretty teeth you have not in reserve. But other treasures have you in your cage, which my colleague wishes to preserve. Now, understand I didn't want to lose the profits that our business had incurred. So when she gave me agency to choose, I nodded at her, never said a word. The motley pelts, which constitute her face, curved upward at my gesture of consent. I felt her take my molars, and in place, she left me seven dollars fifty cents. Now, I suppose that here I'd leave a note to preach at you the moral of my tale. But frankly, every consequence invoked was consented and repaid quite well. So, rather than risk boring you with pity, I'll leap ahead to when this colleague came. And while she never said a word, I knew the organ-farming fairy was her name. It was 11.30 on a Wednesday when my watch began to spin like mad. I heard a creeping coming from the foyer, a raspy cough I knew wasn't my dad. And while I lay awake in bed that night, I knew that I could simply thrash or scream. The creature that crept almost into sight was singing, and while hearing it, it seemed that I could not so much as murmur. My body was as stiff as is a corpse. I couldn't lift my head to view the singer, but strained my eyes to glimpse the singing source. The creature's eyes were watery and black. Its head was long and covered in gray sores, which leaked and quivered, and the skin was cracked. Its hands were more like surgeon's instruments, all bent and shiny metal, flecked with rust. My bed became an operating table. Then, as the creature cut me like the crust of a warm pastry spilling open, I started oozing and emitting steam. About this time, I really started hoping that this was all a rather awful dream, but then, before my eyes, the creature grabbed a writhing, wriggling thing from in my guts, put in a mechanism made of brass, a watch or compass, and then stitched me up. On waking, there was no sign of incision, except a tiny kidney-bean-shaped scar, faded past the point of recognition. I got out of my bed, feeling bizarre. I wasn't weak, as if I'd just been cut. The strain of surgery had not been great. You'd think that losing organs from my gut would leave me more or less inanimate, but frankly, I felt better than before. My clockwork organ kept me right on time. I never missed a bus. Not anymore. So, officer, you asked me if I killed him. Personally, I think it's vile to lie. I only wish to make him more productive. 
I didn't think that he would have to die, but if we measure life and time well spent, I think you'll find we humans waste a lot. To make the human race more efficient, we must reduce the dirty sin of sloth. And I do find I value time the most when I remember I don't have much left. So yes, I know it sounds a little gauche when I tell you, not the least in jest, the curse of long life that we humans have does not encourage productivity. So, if it's wealth and power that you crave, replace your organs. Or better yet, let me... Thanks for the poem, Tyler. That was wonderfully creepy. And that's going to be it for us today, folks. An enormous thank you to Jane Byers for her time and wisdom. Go check out her book, Small Courage, a queer memoir of finding love and conceiving family, as well as her other poetry books. They're amazing. And an extra special thanks to Kootenai band The Hilties for the use of their songs Hocus Pocus and Ride the Wave. You can find their new album, Sunshine, at thehilties.bandcamp.com. That's spelled H-I-L-L-T-I-S. Go check them out and support local musical talent. And thanks to everyone who helped out in the producing of this episode, especially Omida Miller, our faculty advisor, Bree Harwood, our coordinator and featured spoken word artist, Brian Semenek for script and audio editing, Karina Custom, our managing editor, Elkai Chakarulare, our agent and technical advisor, Karen Hamling, team player, Cody Bruner and Landon for student talent recruitment, Lisa Dean, our faculty advisor, Stephanie Henriksen for the interview, Tyler Isaacs DeJong, our featured spoken word artist, Tressa Ford for script and hosting. And if you want to read your own work on our podcast, don't hesitate. You can send your pieces to the Review at gmail.com. That's blackbearreview at gmail.com, all one word with the subject line, podcast guest reader submission. Also, don't forget to check out our page, blackbearreview.ca, for all your Kootenai poetry, fiction, nonfiction, and art needs, and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. And of course, join us again next time for more amazing conversations and performances. Keep an eye out for our next episode coming out in the new year, where we'll have Nicole Sutton talking about her artist residency in motherhood. We're looking forward to sharing a new wave of inspiration and artistic expression when we meet again. Goodbye for now. Be safe out there, be kind, be resilient, and never stop being creative. Be there. I said, Dude's gonna let it rock.